I'm really mad at you. Why this time? (laughs) (laughs) Because, and no one can see this, but Tracy is full face, beautiful makeup. Her skin is glowing. Her hair is that half up, half down look that I can never achieve. She's got these beautiful curls. It's all cute outfit, feeling yourself on her side of it. And I, who was anxiety cleaning until right up until we started recording, I'm not bringing that today. And uh How dare you not tell me that we are serving looks on this video call? (laughs) Two things. One, there are so many episodes we've recorded where you look impeccable, perfection, a goddess walking among us mortals. And I am in an XXL sweatshirt with unwashed hair. (laughs) The other thing is, thank you very much. That was very sweet. I appreciate the compliment. And also, it was 100% so I could film freaking TikToks that talk about mythology. Go follow us on TikTok. (laughs) Because I had to put on makeup for it. (laughs) (laughs) Our anger manifests in such odd ways. I'm so mad at you. You look so pretty. (laughs) And I'm sitting here like, I'm so mad that I had to put on makeup just to tell people facts about things. (laughs) Anyway, hello. Hi, here's a fact presented by a strong liquid lipstick. It is. It's that liquid lipstick we've talked about multiple times. It's kind of a brick deep red. You'll see it on TikTok when you go follow follow us. I don't think we can talk about it anymore without convincing that major corporation to sponsor this podcast. (laughs) Oh, the dream. Well, no, I mean, you know, down with capitalism and all that, but just give me free lipstick is what I'm saying. Tracy can be bought, and I'm guaranteed so can I. Hi, I am Rowan Hall. (laughs) And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you'd like to support us, remember that you can subscribe, leave us a review, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable, check out our merch on our willingandfable.com site, or... You can just continue listening to our episodes. No matter what you do, we are honestly just really glad you chose to join us for this episode. Real quick, Tracy, how oversized is my Willing and Fable merch hoodie right now? Like on a scale of one to a million. Um, turn it up to 11, baby. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You love, you, so again, because this is in audio format you cannot see it but rowan is a tall lady she's she's very tall and i say that because i'm very small i am very short (laughs) so rowan when she wants something that's long enough to do that little flap over your hands you can just curl up in it thing you have to get like (laughs) extra large stuff and then you're all nice and cozy in it so you went full cozy i mean like to the extreme you could bury most of your body in that sweatshirt So 11 out of 10 can recommend our hoodies in oversized form. (laughs) (laughs) Mine are also oversized. I bought one in a small and then actually saw Rowan in her large giant one (laughs) and bought another one in a large size. And that's the only one I wear now. Is that the one that says artists powered by caffeine and compliments? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, coziness aside... Today's topic is a big one. 
in fact, so big that we are only doing one story this week. We decided that in order to do this story justice, we had to give it our full and undivided attention. And by that, I mean Tracy gave it her full and undivided <laughs> attention while I worked on a future episode of Equally Large Import. <laughs> mm-hmm. Get excited for that one. I'm super excited about that one. But for today, I am covering somewhat of a heavy hitter, you might say. And Rowan knows. <laughs> I, I actually took this one from her. She originally had this listed as a story she wanted to do, and I got so quietly jealous that she eventually <laughs> said, do you just, do you want the story? Do you, you're well, clearly it, excited. Here's how it went down. I, <laughs> we were talking about topics and I, like, skipping through the tulips, just humbly went like, ooh, we can cover this topic. And I was harmlessly excited like a butterfly flitting through the mythological breeze <laughs> and then tracy w like scrunched into a ball of jealousy because she wouldn't let it out she didn't want to no, take I think it what from I me did, I, <laughs> I think my reaction was to be like okay well you have to mention this thing and then this thing oh and this thing's really funny did you know this and then there's also this thing and you were like okay all right all right all right <laughs> clearly <laughs> this is a topic you want to cover do you just want it and I said, yes, please. And I did the little the little finger thing and said, yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> what? Give, tell us, Tracy. Tell right, us. Everyone. Tell us. Today, we are talking about someone who was big and strong and, you know, in his eyes were a flaming glow. Most people looked at him with terror and with fear. But to Moscow chicks, he was such a lovely dear. The Michelin Man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, if you haven't guessed by now or somehow didn't read the title of the episode before you clicked play, we're diving into the life and legend surrounding Grigory Rasputin. Ra-ra Rasputin. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get ready for it. <laughs> when I very excitedly told my parents that I was covering Rasputin for our episode this week, my mom asked if I watched the 1997 movie Anastasia for research, which I did. And my dad politely said, wait, who is that? You're kidding me. <laughs> no. And then I, I then I said those lyrics to him. I started singing the the Boney M song, Rara Rasputin. And he's like, but that doesn't help. So if nothing else, I hope my dad learns a few things. Just so anyone who's listening knows, Tracy's dad is so smart. He is actively working on saving the world during the global <laughs> pandemic. And that just goes to show you, you can be smart in one thing and still not know random facts about totally different out of your field things. Yeah, it's like how Sherlock Holmes was so brilliant but didn't know that the earth revolved around the sun because it wasn't important for him to know. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Are, wait, hold on. <laughs> hold on. I'm sorry. I... I know this isn't exactly what you said, but I feel like you just told me that Sherlock Holmes, who I can only imagine as Benedict Cumberbatch or Robert Downey Jr., just, I feel like you just told me he's a flat earther. No, and God. I, oh, God, no. I know that's not what you said, but that's what I got. Fair, fair. <laughs> they make a joke about it in the BBC Sherlock of him not knowing that the earth revolves around the sun. It was something like that. It was something space related. Anyway. Before we start, Tracy, actually, I'm going to quickly interrupt you because we are thrilled. We are thrilled to announce the spring sponsor of Willing and Fable. 
We are so excited to be partnering with our friend Leah at Greenleaf Geek. Greenleaf Geek sells handmade and curated dice, and as we are crows who hoard shiny things, and we're also your resident dice goblins, we could not be more over the moon. Leah was kind enough to send a bunch of her dice to us. We each got one of her handmade sets, and... (laughs) when I tell you that we had the screamiest video call. I don't think we spoke words for the first five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So the handmade set that she sent me is her Galactic Disaster Buy handmade dice. It makes me laugh with joy every time (laughs) I say that name. And the set is glittery and translucent with these delicate pink and purple and blue swirls. And they are so beautiful. And she made this particular set with those sharp, sharp edges that I just love on a dice. Rowan, (laughs) you guys probably wouldn't know this. Rowan talks more than one person probably should about how much she loves sharp edge dice they genuinely bring her joy in a way that delights (laughs) and inspires me i don't know what it is having that crispy crispy edge just makes it feel like the luck is gonna come harder you're gonna fail worse or succeed better i don't Mm -hmm. know So for our fellow Dice Goblins, we will be sharing our love for Leah's work throughout the spring. We are so proud to be partnered with this amazing company. Check out GreenleafGeek.com and find Leah's work on Twitter and Instagram at GreenleafGeek. And when you go shopping to increase your dice hoard, use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. And some restrictions apply. Tracy, we partnered with Handmade Dice Company. (laughs) You guys, we cannot, cannot overstate how happy these dice make us. And the quality of them, it is truly chef's kiss. If you do nothing else today, aside from, you know, enjoying this episode, go check out her vast selection of dice. I feel like we became podcasters officially officially when we got podcast mail we got podcast mail Mm -hmm. like we have merch we have a patreon we've been (laughs) podcasters i love telling stories with you i love doing this there is a special joy that comes from getting cool shiny things i think of Mm -hmm. the jewelry from white light productions and now (laughs) just stunning dice i put mine into these little glass jars that i have and they just sit Mm. among all my oddities and they're perfectly decorative and functional oh my god i love i love them so much i don't know what we're doing to let people know that we like shiny things we want jewelry we want dice in our (laughs) lives but clearly we're doing it right tracy i'm so sorry before you get into rasputin i do have to say one more thing Mm -hmm. um Next week, Harry Har is joining us for an episode on Jack the Ripper. It's another heavy hitter. It will be the three of us covering the topic together. Mm-hmm. Some of you may know that Harry Har is one of my stream mates on One Time on the Internet, which is on twitch.tv slash pixel circus. But Harry Har also has his own show on Twitch, and he covers murder, 
paranormal. True, yeah, true crime, paranormal, cults, spooky, scary, any, anything weird or odd. And he does such a good job, you guys. He's so good at covering those topics. I love working with Harry. I've told Tracy she has to love working with Harry, and it went very well. <laughs> you did not need to tell me. I actually have been a, like, I'm a fan of Harry's stream. Uh, if you guys ever pop on to his show, you'll usually see me in the chat geeking out about whatever his topics are. He genuinely is so delightful to watch yeah, on Twitch. Yeah, you text me if I'm not watching yeah. the stream. You're like, what? <laughs> Excuse me, miss. <laughs> I went to tag you in something really funny and your name didn't pop up in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> so next week we will be covering Jack the Ripper with Harry. And then the following week, I will have a heavy hitter all to myself that we will not reveal. But in the meantime, Tracy, <laughs> rah, rah, Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <clears throat> I am so excited. So before I start telling you all the facts, um, the way that I broke this out is into three large sections. The man, the myth, and the legend. So in the man, we're going to talk about his actual life. The myth, I'm going to debunk some myths. And the legend is going to be my story. <laughs> well done. Thank you. So before I start telling you about the man himself, Rowan, I want to get your general thoughts about Rasputin. When you hear the name Rasputin, what pops into your lovely, wonderful brain? Hmm. See, this is unfortunate because about two years ago, I know I listened to a documentary or a podcast on him and my brain did not retain very much of that. Well, my so brain never I know does. that while you're saying facts, I'm going to go, yeah, yeah, I knew that in my lizard brain, but now I can't think of a single. Don't think about facts. Just think about when, when I say Rasputin, when I say Grigory Rasputin, what do you think of? Well, much influenced by the cartoon Anastasia, I imagine <laughs> him like a gray-toned zombie with unwashed hair who is greasy and sticky. Like a stickiness that you don't know where it comes from because he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Sticky got me. He probably was very sticky. It feels right. <laughs> I know that he was associated with the royal family. I think that he was charged by Daddy McRoyal to heal baby boy McRoyal from hemophilia with magic at some point, but I don't actually know if that's true or just a <laughs> legend. Some of that is correct. Most of it is not. <laughs> you, you think that uh, <laughs> Daddy McRoyal is <laughs> And I... I want to know from you, I want to know if everyone during his time, the commoner, the, mm -hmm. the noble, the, the average person, was going, wow, that man is spooky and scary and probably sold his soul to the devil and he's definitely sticky or he just didn't enter <laughs> their minds at all. Okay. I can answer that for you. I'm not going to do it yet. I'll leave you hanging. So the last <laughs> thing I'll touch on before we get into details is I want to say that as much as I want and would love to make a multi-part, hours-long podcast about just Rasputin. We simply do not have the time. Rowan was gracious enough to let me take over this entire episode just to cover this one <laughs> man. <laughs> but last podcast on the left does have a hilarious, raunchy, but informative series on this very unique man. NPR describes Rasputin perfectly when they say, 
He was Russia's mad monk, a pale, bearded, wiry, horny, green-eyed debauch who was the preeminent power broker of the Romanov dynasty in its waning years. A party fiend, a drinker, a healer, and a prophet who was poisoned, shot, drowned, and burned by his enemies. But was he really? The answer is, we will never know. The life of Grigory Rasputin, the Siberian peasant who, through a charismatic combination of spiritual and sexual power, rose to become chief mentor to Alexandra, the last Tsarina of Russia. It is such a thick borscht of fact and fiction that it's hard to distinguish the truth from the lies. End quote. Oh no, oh no, now I have to build a monk based on Rasputin to play in a campaign. <gasps> the fact that I have never thought to do that is truly devastating. I mean, you can build a monk. I'll build you one in 5e so you can play it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would love that. Okay, so <laughs> let's start with the early life of Rasputin. January 21st, 1869, Grigory Rasputin was born as a peasant in the small riverside village of Pokrovskoya in Siberia. His birth name was probably Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. He was named after the 4th century saint, St. Gregory of Nyssa, whose feast was celebrated on January 10th, 11 days prior to his birthday. Rasputin's father was a farmer and church elder named Yefim, and his mother was a woman named Anna Parshukova. According to historian Douglas Smith, Rasputin's youth and early adulthood are a black hole about which we know almost nothing. Though the lack of reliable sources and information did not stop others from fabricating stories about his parents and his youth well after Rasputin's rise to fame. Of course, he was a peasant in Siberia, and yeah. there were no cell phones and TikTok videos recording every moment of everyone's no, life. Not even a little bit. It's most likely that, like most Siberian peasants, including his mother and father, Rasputin was not formally educated and remained illiterate well into his early adulthood. In 1886, at only 17 years of age, Rasputin traveled to Abalak, Russia, around 250 kilometers, or 155 miles, from his hometown. It was here that he met Paskovia Dobrovina, the woman who would become his wife. After a months-long courtship, they married in February of 1887, and though Praskovia would remain in Pokrovskoya, and despite Rasputin's travels, she stayed devoted to him until his death. So there was a point in his life where he wasn't a sticky zombie man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so he—you can see pictures of him from—it might not be this time. There's actually a lot of pictures of Rasputin, or— a lot of pictures of Rasputin for someone who was born in the late 1800s. So you can see what he looks like. And he, you know, actually, this will be fun. Rowan, why don't you pull up a picture of Rasputin and describe what he looks like to the viewers? <laughs> okay. As a young, as a young Just in general, monk. what Rasputin looks like so we can get a, a picture of him in our head that is not <laughs> the long-haired monk from Anastasia whose head keeps falling off. But it's such a good image. <laughs> It is a good image. But the real one is very, he kind of, to me, has the look of like an eighth grade boy. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, no, this is worse. God, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be mean to people about their appearance, but he is a scary man. Like, if I saw him on the street, I, I would cross the street. He... So what does he look like? 
Well, all the pictures I'm looking at are when he is much old. Oh, here's one when he's young. Okay, okay, okay. He he's he's doing great here. Okay. So as a young man, mm-hmm. he he has a center part hair. It's the center part, the greasy center part just gets me. And his eyes are like deep set and he looks weary, but in a perfectly normal way, just like mm-hmm. he had a long night. His beard is really full and it's long in that it covers his neck, but it's really neat. Mm-hmm. And this photo that I'm looking at is colorized based on what they think is accurate. So he has warm brown hair and mm-hmm. his eyes, I don't know what color they are, but they're piercing. Yes, and- he is famous for his eyes. He was known as having an extremely hypnotic and captivating gaze. And in later photos in which he looks, in fact, quite scary, his hair has grown much longer. His beard has grown long to the point that it looks like knotted at the bottom, yeah, but not on purpose. Yeah, it's very scraggly. He was known for getting food stuck in his beard when he ate because he just had really crappy table manners. Definitely became unkempt his eyes now it looks like he's trying to be a boy in a punk rock band it looks like he has eyeshadow around his entire eyes and he's doing that serial killer in a movie thing where his head is tilted down but he's looking up at you mm-hmm. yes he, he 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 was very striking and he, you'll find caricatures of him at the time that really emphasize those eyes and call it, they call him the Mad Monk. And there'll be caricatures where it's really focused on how intense his eyes were. There are a lot of photos of him. And I, I will say he has a very particular bald spot on the top middle of his head. The kind of bald spot that you could be like, ah, oh, yes, I was in a fire and I burned this spot saving a kitten. It's, it's that specific. <laughs> okay. All right. So that is what Rasputin looks like. He and his wife had seven children, although only three would survive until adulthood. Dmitri, born in 1895, Maria, born in 1898, and Vavara, born in 1900. So here's where we are. It's 1897. Our boy is married. He's 28 years old. He has children and a life into which he has settled. So he decides that it's the perfect time to go on a religious pilgrimage far, far away from home. His reasons for the sudden departure are unclear. Some believe he left in order to escape punishment for his role in a horse theft, while others say he had a vision of the Virgin Mary, and others still say it was inspired by a young theology student, Meliti Zabrowski. I keep having to remind myself that this, in this time period... We're a little bit closer, although it's certainly getting a little late in the game for this, but when it was not unacceptable to have visions of a Christian god and then mm-hmm. believe you are called. Nowadays, you pretty quickly get labeled as a heretic or the modern equivalent. <laughs> yeah, or mentally ill, couldn't possibly be real, yeah. He, there, people don't know, but uh, Rasputin historian and author of the book Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, Douglas Smith, who I mentioned earlier, said that this decision of Rasputin's, quote, could only have been occasioned by some sort of emotional or spiritual crisis, end quote. 
This is because Rasputin had an infant child at the time and another baby on the way. He'd taken short pilgrimages earlier to the Holy Zamensky Monastery at Abalak and to Tobolsk's Cathedral, but it was his 1897 visit to St. Nicholas Monastery that would transform him forever. I'm sorry to interrupt, Tracy. When the pandemic is over, would you like to have some sort of emotional or spiritual crisis and go on a vacation far, (laughs) far away? Is the emotional or spiritual crisis a prerequisite for getting to go on a cool vacation? I can find someone to quote that that's what we're doing. Cool, 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 cool. That's all I need. Yeah, I'm down. Okay. (laughs) So it was here that Rasputin met and was said to be profoundly humbled by a staretz or elder named Makeri. He spent several months here, possibly learning to read and write, before returning home complaining about the monastic life. However, he returned home with a newfound passion for life in which he became a vegetarian, swore off alcohol, and was said to sing more than he did before. Rasputin spent the years that followed as a stronic, or a holy wanderer or pilgrim, leaving Pokrovskoya for months or even years at a time to wander the country and visit a variety of holy sites. It's possible he wandered as far as Mount Athos, the center of the Eastern Orthodox monastic life, in 1900. By this time, he'd gathered a small following of mostly family members and local peasants who would pray with him in his father's basement, which he turned into a makeshift chapel. Were they praying in the basement because it was illegal or frowned upon, or was that just the convenient location? They just really wanted, yeah, they wanted to follow Rasputin. So um, here, I'll give you a quote from Wikipedia. These meetings were the subject of some suspicion and hostility from the village priest (laughs) and other villagers. It was rumored that the female followers were ceremonially washing him before each meeting, that the group sang strange songs, and even that Rasputin had joined the Klisti, a religious sect whose ecstatic rituals were rumored to include self-flagellation and sexual orgies. Wow, this has a little bit of a Jonestown vibe. I mean, in in that people are following and believing in a, a leader. Yeah, I mean, you see that with a ton of cults, like cults. Yeah, cults in general. I guess it has a culty feel. I'll give you that. It has. It definitely has a culty feel of the cult of personality. Or Manson, a dirty man. Basically, the cult is following a specifically dirty man. <laughs> I have no basis for this. In my head, Rasputin has a very specific smell. Oh, oh, for sure. I'm, <laughs> it is fact. Can confirm. Because I know him. <laughs> <laughs> However, according to historian Joseph Furman, repeated investigations failed to establish that Rasputin was ever a member of the Khaleesi sect. And rumors that he was a Khaleesi appeared to have been unfounded. According to New World Encyclopedia, the Kalisti, whose impassioned services ending in physical exhaustion were infamous, spawning widespread rumors that religious and sexual ecstasy were combined in these rituals. Suspicion that Rasputin was one of the Kalisti threatened his reputation all the way until the end of his life. According to Rasputin's daughter Maria, Rasputin did look into the Kalisti sect, but rejected it. Hmm. So... 
I'm not surprised that people latched onto that. He did apparently look into it. It said some people believe he took the idea of the self-flagellation and religious ecstasy that comes from that and translated that into sexual ecstasy bringing him closer to God. And people think that's a connection he might have made. But again, as with everything with Rasputin, take it with a grain of salt because unless we have documented evidence, it's, it's just a lot of hearsay. So now, it's the early 20th century. Rasputin has a small following. He may or may not be sleeping with some of his female followers, and his charisma score is off the charts. (laughs) Around 1904 or 1905, he heads to Kazan, where he gains a reputation for being a wise holy man who could help people resolve their spiritual or religious anxieties. The father superior of the Seven Lakes Monastery outside Kazan, as well as local church officials, gave him a letter of recommendation to Bishop Sergei, the rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary, and arranged for him to travel to St. Petersburg. Do you have an idea how impoverished these communities were at this time that he was traveling? I don't know any exact facts, but given that this is only... 10 to 20 years away from the revolution that overthrew the Romanovs, people were not thriving. Right. So that is an environment that makes it that much easier to convince people of your cause. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you when you can help them. When you can help them and when it, you know, he seems like someone who believed, and I talk about it more later, but his his beliefs were basically If some sins help you avoid greater ones, they're okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So now we're at Archimandrite Theophan, inspector of the Theological Seminary. He was so impressed with Rasputin that he invited him to stay at his home. Theophan became one of Rasputin's most important and influential friends in St. Petersburg and gained him entry to many of the influential salons where the aristocracy gathered for religious discussions. It was through these meetings that Rasputin attracted some of his early and influential followers. Alternative religious movements such as spiritualism and theosophy had become popular among the city's aristocracy before Rasputin's arrival in St. Petersburg, and many of the aristocracy were intensely curious about the occult and supernatural. Rasputin's ideas and strange manners made him the subject of intense curiosity among St. Petersburg's elite, who, according to historian Joseph Furman, were bored, cynical, and seeking new experiences during this period. Why is it that so many topics you and I are interested in are spiritualism adjacent? Gee, I wonder. I can't put my finger on why that might be. It allows people of a lower class in society to very easily enter upper-class society because they're entertaining and they're Mm -hmm. novel and the fact that they, you know, whatever it is, but maybe speak to the dead or maybe see the future or have a unique religion instead of keeping them ostracized is suddenly like, ooh, I know this odd man and Mm -hmm. I've learned this weird fact and you have to come to my house to get in the salon with him. Mm -hmm. Right, and but it does, and you'll see with Rasputin at least, There were times where it gave these people genuine power to be, you know, a a cool prop that someone brings into their salon. By 1905, 
Rasputin had formed so many important and influential friendships that it allowed him to eventually be introduced to the Tsar and his family. The Tsar and Rasputin first met on November 1st, 1905, at the Peterhof Palace. Tsar Nicholas reported this event in his diary, writing that he and his wife Alexandra had, quote, made the acquaintance of a man of God, Grigory, from Tobolsk province, end quote. Rasputin likely returned home for around a year before coming back to St. Petersburg once again and meeting with the Tsar and Tsarina in July and then October when he finally met their children. Rasputin was either introduced up front as someone who could heal Alexei Romanov, or he was simply asked to pray for the young boy's health. Either way, the royal family became convinced that Rasputin, this strange, bearded monk with odd mannerisms was the only one capable of helping their son. I don't want to jump the gun here, but because so many people describe him in various ways as odd, Mm -hmm. is there any reason to believe that he was suffering from mental health issues that were then manifesting in ways because there was no mental health care. <laughs> it's quite possible. I mean, he was described as odd because he didn't care to learn manners the appropriate way. He pushed what he believed. He was rough around the edges. He really liked sex. He's pretty open about that. <laughs> right. Being odd and liking sex does not immediately mean you have mental suffer from mental health right. issues. It <laughs> it It's just interesting to have this combination of someone who completely gives up their life, throws themselves into Mm -hmm. a rules-filled religious belief, and then continuously shirk society. Yeah. Yeah, he's really interesting. And something that I didn't explicitly call out, which I will talk about later, he's not actually part of the church he's not part of he's not officially a monk he's described as the mad monk he was never ordained so he's kind of he's he's a holy spiritual man but not necessarily a big religious figure hmm okay we've got some jesus vibes going on (laughs) so let's talk about alexei nikolovich the youngest child and only son of nicholas and alexandra Yes, let's get into this gilded gold dark family history because I am absolutely one of those former children that was obsessed with Anastasia a thousand percent. I don't talk about the other kids, really. I focus on Alexei in this episode because he's the only one that had real connections with Rasputin. I'm excited. Let's okay. I, like I'm I'm on I'm tru- actually literally on the edge of my seat. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned earlier the big thing that Alexei was known for, which is that he famously suffered from hemophilia, and it was documented early on that Rasputin was able to ease the child's pain and help stop the bleeding. I love not being wrong. <laughs> Historian Harold Shukman wrote that Rasputin became an indispensable member of the royal entourage. And it's been noted that the Tsarina herself had a passionate attachment to Rasputin. Rasputin had been rumored to be capable of faith healing since his arrival in St. Petersburg, and the Tsarina's friend, Anna Varubova, became convinced that Rasputin had miraculous powers shortly thereafter. 
She would also go on to become one of Rasputin's most influential advocates. Historians, including memoirist Pierre Guillard, Alexei's French-language tutor, have speculated that Rasputin controlled Alexei's bleeding by disallowing the administration of aspirin. Aspirin would interfere with the stickiness of the blood platelets and add to problems with bleeding. So it's quite possible that by insisting the doctors leave Alexei alone during his incidents, that Rasputin did more to help him than others who were also trying to heal him at the time. That is actually super cool. Mm-hmm. I am not into religion getting in the way of medicine in most cases, but giving aspirin to someone to help their hemophilia is a bad call. It's a bad call. It, yeah, um, it's not good. And they would move him around and try and do all this stuff to help him. And Rasputin would always say, don't let the doctors bother him. Leave him alone. And arguably that was more helpful than making him shift himself around and take aspirin. That's really cool. Yeah. So now it's time for my story which is a fictionalized version of an actual event that took place. Oh, okay. The warm summer air was swirling all around in waves of rolling heat. The world seemed calm and quiet for just a moment, and it was a time of joy and peace for the royal family of Russia. They had decided to use this time to take a trip to the royal hunting grounds at Spala. It would be a chance for them to get away for a bit and enjoy the outdoors together. However... As with so many of the royal family's hopes, this, too, would be dashed. As the carriage approached the hunting grounds, the road was unusually rocky and uneven, especially for this time of year. So when the carriage jolted its way across the stones, Alexandra knew immediately that this would mean trouble for her young son, Alexei. Sure enough, that night, Alexei developed a fever, and there was bleeding along his thigh and groin. The boy writhed in his bed, aching in pain, with his fever rising to dangerous levels. His mother was panicked. They were so far away from their home, and the only man who could help them was back home in Siberia. So she asked her friend, Varubova, to send a telegram to Rasputin, hoping he could help save the boy. She believed that the monk would be able to pray for Alexei's health and recovery, even from so far away. As Varubova rushed off to send the telegram, a storm rolled in across the sky. It felt prophetic to Alexandra, as though the weather were reflecting the rolling storm of fear and pain she felt inside. With each passing hour that she paced the halls, her son grew worse. His groans and cries of pain were only softened by the sound of Alexandra's constant pacing footsteps. Alexandra stared out of the manor window as the rain beat onto the glass and wondered if her son would survive until morning. Barubova came rushing down the halls, her skirts flying about her ankles as she practically shoved a telegram into Alexandra's hands. It was a short message that only read, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Alexandra clutched the message to her chest and wept tears of hope and relief. She instructed the doctors to leave Alexei alone, and she sat next to his bed for the rest of the night, whispering to him that Rasputin had seen to it that he would survive. As the storm abated and morning rolled in, soft and gentle across the sky, Alexei Romanov's fever broke, and he stopped bleeding. Dawn graced the horizon like a mother's soft kiss, and Alexei woke to greet Alexandra with a soft and peaceful smile. 
So, like I said, that story is based off a real event in Rasputin's life. It is a miracle that Alexei Romanov survived as long as he did. Really and I don't is. mean to say miracle in the, in the Rasputin <laughs> no, way. No, no, no. I know what you mean. It is. It's, uh, it, it, I mean, even now, hemophilia is extremely dangerous. And back then, uh, it, it's, it's amazing he survived with how little we understood the disease. Well, and also the miracle really is very much helped by the fact that he was born into the lap of luxury. Mm -hmm. He had the opportunity to stay safe Mm -hmm. rather than have to sow the field or what have you, do a trade job. Yes, he was definitely very lucky to have been born a royal. You know, hemophilia was known as the royal disease. So can you tell me how much of this story is provable fact and how much is amped up because story (laughs) yes okay so according to wikipedia this was a famous story where quote during the summer of 1912 alexi developed a hemorrhage in his thigh and groin after a jolting carriage ride near the royal hunting grounds at spala which caused a large hematoma in severe pain and delirious with fever the Tsarevich appeared close to death in desperation alexandra asked varibova to send rasputin who was in siberia a telegram asking him to pray for Alexei. Rasputin wrote back quickly, telling Alexandra that God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. The next morning, Alexei's condition was unchanged, but Alexandra was encouraged by the message and regained some hope that Alexei would survive. Alexei's bleeding stopped the following day. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> I sped up the timeline a little bit in my story, but... That really just kind of dramatized an actual event that happened where, again, it really comes down to, um, I think, encouraging doctors to leave him alone was really helpful. But even doctors who were there claimed that the recovery was wholly inexplicable from a medical point of view, and they couldn't blame Alexandra for seeing Rasputin as a miracle man. Supposedly, one doctor said that there were times when, quote, Rasputin would come in, walk up to the patient, look at him, and spit. The bleeding would stop in no time. How could the empress not trust Rasputin after that? End quote. That is ballsy. I would be so stressed. He was nothing if not ballsy. Because if you say that child is going to heal, and that child does not heal, the royal family that is distraught and emotional has the power to kill you with no consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially later on, as people started really distrusting Rasputin, it it would have been so easy to get rid of him. People would have really appreciated it. And no one knows for sure how Rasputin helped Alexei, but it's believed that by suggesting that the doctors leave him alone and by calming Alexandra... That Rasputin was able to help relieve both the physical and emotional stress surrounding the child during his illness. So that also could play a big part in it, that helping to calm Alexandra helped calm Alexei, which helped him recover. Oh, absolutely. The placebo effect exists for a reason. And Mm -hmm. when, especially with children, but people in general in hospitals, when everyone around you is saying, this is serious, this is serious, you could die, (gasps) panic affects your ability to heal. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And if someone is there going, you're going to be fine, we're going to make everything a little calmer, then that child gets to sleep 
yes. or <laughs> read a book. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I I do think he helped. I just think it wasn't necessarily through magical means. It's interesting also because a lot of people find solace in their religion during times of great stress. And if this man is providing a figure that is all powerful that this family can believe will help them, th- that is a, a immense amount of comfort. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Especially Alexandra was really, really religious and really believed in her religion and spirituality. So having Rasputin really helped calm her when he said, your son will survive, he will be okay. She took that to mean that God saw that her child would survive. I am tickled that magical spit is a is an element of this. <laughs> <laughs> it feels right for that greasy, greasy man. All right, moving on. <laughs> now we're going to talk about Rasputin's growing political power and some controversies. The ensuing belief in Rasputin's mystical powers eventually gave the man considerable power and status in court. He became the official lamplighter for all religious icons in the palace, thus giving him easy access to the royal family. By 1906, he was close enough to Tsar Nicholas that he was able to request the favor of having his surname changed to Rasputin Novi, or New Rasputin. And the Tsar had the name change speedily processed. Oh, that's yeah. big. Yeah. Yep. He was really he was really close with the royal family at this point. And at this point, Tsar Nicholas cared about him and at least believed in him or was as close to him as Alexandra, even though she remained much more loyal to Rasputin. And Tsar Nicholas eventually kind of would get frustrated at Rasputin's power and people constantly saying that he was that Nicholas was weak and that Rasputin, while Nicholas was away at war, was controlling Alexandra. But that happens a little bit later. As of right now, they were close enough that he would grant this request. Can I double back with a ridiculous fact? Yeah. <laughs> so I needed to know more about the spit element. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought I'd say that. I did. So, <laughs> so according to a 2008 study... There's a protein in saliva called histatin that not only helps kill bacteria and prevent infections, but it also accelerates the healing process. Ooh. And you should not necessarily start licking your wounds because your mouth is also filled with exciting bacteria. But... Another study in 2006 explained that an enzyme in saliva called lyozyme can attack the cell walls of bacteria to defend against infection. Ooh. Wait for it. Wait for it. Another study published in 1938 claims that, quote, it is well known that the addition of saliva to blood will accelerate coagulation. (gasps) Rasputin's magic Bit helped. <laughs> this is all reported by Dollar Shave Club, and it's based on <laughs> nicking your face when you shave. <laughs> but I am loving the fact that this man is just constantly stumbling across science by accident, and I refuse to believe now that he didn't spit on the royal child. 
It's canon. I love Rasputin keeps failing upwards. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to to completely double back. And more of this article talks about how it could cause flesh eating problems. But, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you get some ups, you get some downs. It is fascinating that since it is now canon that this man spit on this child, that <laughs> <laughs> the royal family, of course, they kept him around because God and and divine power. But... The fact that they then continued to give him political power rather than just kind of keeping him in their back pocket, maybe in the lap of luxury, is fascinating. That that name change is really... I cannot overemphasize his charisma. This man had something going on. He was so captivating. And he really did have strong opinions on... A few things and he he was a close confidant of the royal family and so he would talk to them about his ideas and his opinion and how to help people and he was really passionate about helping the poor and he would write czar nicholas letters but because he was kind of only somewhat literate they were hard to decipher and and tough to read but he would write about you know there was a an anecdote that i saw where he found out that people were starving to death and the royal grain storage had so much grain that some of it was just rotting that he wrote to czar nicholas and said we need to give people this grain and it ended up not happening but he really did genuinely care and he used his position at times to push to those agendas that he cared about being a monarch is somewhat like being in a gilded cage oh absolutely don't speak plainly to you. So I would guess that the fact that this man is having actual conversations with this Mm -hmm. family rather than just saying, oh, you look beautiful. Oh, I'll pray for your child. And do you think pink is in fashion is is probably a really big deal for them. Oh, absolutely. I have to imagine that was a big part of it. All right. So moving on, I want to throw just a quick content warning coming up for the mention of rape. There will be no details included, but the word itself will be mentioned just a couple times. By 1907, Rasputin's favor with the royal family caused him to be quite the controversial figure. His enemies accused him of heresy, rape, controlling the Tsar, and having an affair with the Tsarina. By this time, the clergy in his hometown of Pokrovskoya denounced him as a heretic. Kehionia Berlitatska, who had been one of Rasputin's early supporters in St. Petersburg, accused him of rape. She went to Archimandrite Theophan, the powerful church leader I mentioned earlier, for aid, and upon hearing about this incident, Theophan decided that Rasputin was a danger to the monarchy. Rumors multiplied that Rasputin had assaulted female followers and behaved inappropriately on visits to the royal family, particularly with the Tsar's teenage daughters Olga and Tatiana. These rumors were reported widely in the press after March 1910. It was widely known that Rasputin enjoyed sexual encounters with female followers and accepted bribes and sexual favors from his admirers. It was so commonly believed that Rasputin was sleeping around, even with the Tsarina, that pornographic postcards were circulated depicting the two in a love affair. This rumor, along with that of him behaving inappropriately with the Romanov daughters, is likely just that, a rumor. But as for those earlier rumors, we can't be sure. Empress Alexandra was devoutly religious and took adultery extremely seriously. And 
If any hint of misconduct happened with the royal children, even Rasputin himself would have been severely punished. It sounds... it sounds like the media having something to grab at, always. And, mm-hmm. you know, built of uh, jealousy in some ways. Everyone loves to tear oh. down the the celebrities, and he's an easy one to grab at. Right, because it seems almost unfair that this wild man of spirituality is so important, especially when you're in the clergy and you feel like you are more righteous. Right, and none of them are seeing that he is trying to do good work for them. Mm -hmm. Right, because he was also very famous for getting into arguments with the Russian Orthodox clergy. Mm. So he would argue with them publicly, which then made people dislike him more because who is this man to argue with them? So he... He was not particularly concerned about having a good reputation and, you know, for that reason, among others, had a particularly rough one. (laughs) And as with everything Rasputin, it's hard to know what's true and what's not. It sounds like we have two very different things going on here. A woman in a vulnerable position because of her class reporting sexual assault that may or may not have been cared for but was definitely publicized and politicized. And it's possible that these men were re-traumatizing a victim in their own quest for political power. But we'll never know the rest of her story or the possible stories of other vulnerable women in Rasputin's life. Because people, I mean men, <laughs> with power prioritized their own goals. And then, to my understanding, political movers and shakers were taking it a step further and making claims involving the royal family, thereby using sexual assault allegations as a mean to their own ends again. Those political cartoons weren't created to protect the Tsarina or her children. You paralleled it perfectly in your description, and it is... Maddening. Truly. So, according to an article by Albinko Heisek for Time magazine, tales of Rasputin's sexual exploits began to spread early into his time with the royal court as his eccentric behavior, like drinking heavily and visiting brothels, was seen to clash with his religious piety. According to some historians who believe Rasputin may have been a member of, or at least influenced by the Cleist religious sect, such sinful behavior brought him closer to God. However, though he did frequently entertain in salons, there is no evidence to suggest Rasputin was a sex-crazed maniac who had a secret affair with Russia's queen. Much like the rest of his life, his behavior in this realm has been exaggerated, and, following the February Revolution of 1917, embellished by his enemies in an attempt to propagandize his life. Rasputin spoke of salvation as depending less on the clergy and the church than it was on seeking the spirit of God within oneself. He claimed that for him, it was better to yield to temptations such as sex and alcohol, the latter of the two he would become increasingly addicted to later in life, as these sins helped him to spell the sin of vanity. He felt this was necessary on the road to repentance and salvation. So while he was no saint, he certainly was not necessarily the monster that people made him out to be. Because this is leading up to the revolution and things were increasingly hard for the people of Russia, it always fascinates me that 
some people go to religious beliefs that prohibit behavior rather than kind of going Rasputin's way, which is reveling in the easy access goodness of life. Mm-hmm. That That's so fascinating to me. And I maybe it's that very human need to have rules so that you can check boxes and then know that you will be eternally rewarded. Mm-hmm. To control your suffering as well. Or to feel like suffering has, has a meaning and, and a bigger purpose. Exactly. And so if Rasputin's going the other way with it, all you can do is condemn him or else your choices mean less. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So at this point in his life, Alexandra had grown increasingly dependent on Rasputin. And after 1911, several roles within high government were filled by his appointees, allowing him great influence over matters of state. This perceived weakness of the Tsar and Tsarina helped to destroy the general respect people had for them. According to New World Encyclopedia, Rasputin was deeply opposed to war, both from a moral point of view and as something which was likely to lead to political catastrophe. During the years of World War I, Rasputin's increasing drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and willingness to accept bribes in return for helping petitioners who flocked to his apartment, as well as his efforts to have his critics dismissed from their posts, made him appear both corrupt and cynical. Rasputin became the focus of accusations of unpatriotic influence at court. The unpopular Tsarina, meanwhile, was of German descent, and she came to be accused of acting as a spy in the German employ. I constantly have to remind myself that this is taking place during World War I. I know. Doesn't it feel... There are some events in history that are just insane to realize occurred simultaneously. It feels like Rasputin and World War I are fundamentally different touchstones in history. Absolutely. It, absolutely. And the fact that the Tsarina was of German descent and, you know, she's getting blamed for a lot mm-hmm. of what's going on reminds me very much of Marie Antoinette being of Austrian descent and then becoming the scapegoat mm-hmm. during the French Revolution. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So is he aware that <laughs> his influence now hangs in the balance or is he isolated from the fact that people increasingly distrust him? Oh, I think everyone was aware that he was disliked. There was propaganda spread, if not by 1914, at least in 1915, 1916, of images of Rasputin as this big scary figure holding Nicholas and Alexandra in his hands as this puppet master. I mean, people really believed and blamed him and their respect for the royal family was just plummeting. People really, really, really thought Nicholas was just way too weak to be the czar. Mm. All of this came to a head in 1914. On July 12th, 1914, a 33-year-old peasant woman named Kionia Guseva stabbed Rasputin outside of his home in Pokrovskoye. She claimed she tried to assassinate him because he was seducing the innocent. Despite the seriousness of this wound and the massive blood loss, Rasputin survived the attack and made a full recovery. Spit, baby. Mm, God, he have the spit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's so sticky. <laughs> We've solved it. We know why he was such a sticky, greasy man. <laughs> 
I will apologize for nothing. Nor should you. <laughs> Guseva, Rasputin's attacker, was a follower of Iliador, a former priest who had supported Rasputin before denouncing his sexual escapades and self-aggrandizement in December 1911. Both the police and Rasputin believed that Iliador had instigated the attempt on Rasputin's life. However, Iliador fled the country before he could be questioned, and Guseva was found to be not responsible for her actions by reason of insanity. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> hey, it, it, she got away with it. Good for you, gal. Be Do your thing. I hope you didn't get institutionalized. Oh, God, I hope not either. That would have been... Can you imagine being institutionalized in 1914 in Russia before the revolution? Ugh. There's no way you're getting out of there ever. No, and there's no way it's even a bearable place to be. Yeah, uh, so we have this story, but he lived. Exactly. The next thing I'm going to talk about is how he died. So what, what other questions <laughs> or thoughts do you have about the life of Rasputin before we get into the infamous death of Rasputin? Honestly, now that I know that his spit cured wounds, I'm like, I get it. I suddenly <laughs> understand. Early on, you asked um, if if the everyday person knew who he was or just saw him as a weird, greasy man. I feel like the answer to that is most people seem to at least know of him, if not recognize mm -hmm. him on site. But he was very famous in his time. I wish there was some way I could know how much of his rise to power was planned political manipulation and how much of it was just stumbling upwards. <laughs> I just don't know. I really praying truly and don't spitting know. your way up. <laughs> <laughs> I truly don't know, but I would love oh to to be given five minutes to talk to Rasputin. Could you imagine? Um Unfortunately, I can, actually. <laughs> I don't think it would be the most pleasant experience, but it would be a wild one. I would not choose him for one of those, you know, like, get-to-know-you questions where they're like, which historical figure would you sit down to with dinner? Mm -hmm. Mama. Like, n I would never pick him. He definitely smells weird, for sure. I think I kind of would. I think. Okay. I think after this, I'm team... I want to know what he really smelled like. Was he sticky? How charismatic <laughs> was he? Like, why was everyone obsessed with him? I cannot help but wonder as well how much the czar was affected by the rumors that his wife was sleeping with this man that was very much enmeshed in their lives. Because one of the reasons that we had the Russian Revolution was that this royal family was choosing to be so isolated mm -hmm. from the public they lived in this pretty little fabergé egg of <laughs> yeah willful ignorance mm -hmm. and so i wonder if he was bopping around his life going you know this monk is healing my son that's all i'm thinking about i'm being the czar or if these rumors were happening and he was sitting there kind of seething going is my wife sleeping with this man i think if he really believed that his wife was sleeping with Rasputin. He, well, he might have done something about it. I mean, again, I don't know how much of it is history, rewritten history, you know, revisionist history that Nicholas was really weak. I think he was a generally kind person. I know he and Alexandra genuinely loved each other. There's a whole 
story about their romance, but I do believe the the belief that Rasputin was controlling Alexandra and thus controlling matters of state genuinely upset him more than the idea that Alexandra was sleeping with him because she was so religious and they were so in love with each other. I don't think he was as worried about that as he was by the fact that this weird, smelly, sticky, greasy monk was more powerful than he was in the perception of many people of who, who were his subjects. Well, the story of Nicholas and Alexandra is kind of a Bridgerton-style romance. It's exciting and pretty, mm-hmm. but it is not ultra-nuanced as far as politics and uh, actual participation in ruling Russia goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. You ready to get into the murder of Gregory yes. Rasputin? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so you probably heard some version of the story of Rasputin's infamous murder, such as the one I'm going to tell you that was told by All That's Interesting. <laughs> okay. The death of Grigory Rasputin, a man who proved to be seemingly unkillable, is one of the most astounding stories in human history. On the night of December 29th, 1916, a group of nobles who feared the powerful holy man's influence with Russia's royal family summoned him to the home of conspirator Prince Felix Yusupov and began to execute their murderous scheme. First, they poisoned him with tea and cakes that had been laced with cyanide, but he showed no signs of distress. Then he drank three glasses of wine, which had also been poisoned, and yet he carried on unfazed. By 2.30 a.m., his dumbfounded killers huddled up in astonishment to figure out a new plan. Yusupov then took out a revolver, told Rasputin to say a prayer, and shot him in the chest before leaving him for dead. When the assassins returned to the body later on, Rasputin suddenly sprang up and attacked Yusupov before chasing his entire band of attackers into the courtyard, where they bludgeoned him and shot him several more times, But still, he wasn't dead. Finally, they had to wrap him up and toss him into a freezing river where he eventually succumbed to hypothermia. End quote. Were they just really bad at assassinating? (laughs) Or was this man in an alliance with a god? (laughs) Great propaganda for him being very connected to God, right? And also... I'm going to say it. That's pretty badass. It's a good story. It's a really good story. Here's the thing, though. No. No, don't do it. In reality, all we know is that Rasputin was murdered during the early morning of December 30th, 1916, at the home of Felix Yusupov. He died of three gunshot wounds, one of which was a close-range shot to his forehead. Little is certain about his death beyond this, and the circumstances of his death have been the subject of considerable speculation. According to historian Douglas Smith, what really happened at the Yusupov home on December 29th will never be known. Okay, did they at least find him in a freezing river? Was there cyanide anywhere on the scene? Did they do the caution tape? Did they chalk draw the body? I need someone to check (laughs) for traces of cyanide. Come on. Well, good news. He did have an uh, autopsy. He was pulled out of the river. So his body was pulled out of the river. The story that I told you was the story that Yusupov recounted in his memoirs, and it's become the most frequently told version of events. And for good reason. 
a mad monk chugging a ton of poison, surviving, being shot, only to chase his attackers and ultimately die of hypothermia is so much more compelling than, we took him to the basement and shot him and then he died. Yeah, there's no way that's not just self-aggrandizement. Darn it! I wanted it so bad! I know. I. It's what I thought, too. When when I said, I'm going to do Rasputin's story, and my dad said, who is that? I said, it's the, the monk who wouldn't die. They shot him. They beat him. They poisoned him, and he didn't die. And ultimately, he died of hypothermia. And then I was doing this research and was like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's less fun than that. Yeah, this is actually another moment where history... Not providing on the death front. No. I mean, it is kind of because some historical figure lied about it, but... Yeah. To give you a long quote from Wikipedia, News of Rasputin's murder spread quickly, even before his body was found. According to Douglas Smith, Parishkovich spoke openly about Rasputin's murder to two soldiers and to a policeman who was investigating reports of shots <gasps> shortly after the event, but he urged them not to tell anyone else. An investigation was launched the next morning. The Stock Exchange Gazette ran a report of Rasputin's death after a party in one of the most aristocratic homes in the center of the city on the afternoon of December 30th in 1916. What is going on in Russia that this rich guy gets to say, yeah, I just killed this uh, monk, no biggie, don't tell anyone, cop and soldiers? Right? Just, Just wait, it gets crazier. I mean, they were rich, so yeah, but... Dr. Dmitry Kosorotov, the city's senior autopsy surgeon, conducted an autopsy. Kosorotov's report was lost, but he later stated that Rasputin's body had shown signs of severe trauma, including three gunshot wounds, one at close range to his forehead, a slice wound on his left side, and many other injuries, many of which Kosorotov felt had been sustained post-mortem. Kosorotov found a single bullet in Rasputin's body, but stated that it was too badly deformed and of a type too widely used to be traced. He found no evidence that Rasputin had been poisoned. According to both Douglas Smith and Joseph Furman, Kosorotov found no water in Rasputin's lungs, and reports were incorrect that Rasputin had been thrown into the water alive. Some later accounts claimed that Rasputin's penis had been severed, but Kosorotov (gasps) found his genitals intact. Right, because it's not cool to admit in your memoir that you shot a guy and then after he was dead you just kicked it a bunch and punched Mm -hmm. it and then dumped it in a river no it makes you seem so much cooler and more justified in a big chase and he wouldn't die and he was you know we had to do it look at how powerful he was look at what he was able to accomplish he he wouldn't even die and it makes you seem better makes him seem better of course the autopsy report was lost of course course it was of course it was why would it why would anything in the story be easy to find well, also, there are aristocrats, and uh, mm. the autopsy report makes them look bad. It does. Ooh, it does. Let's circle back, though, to this um, this uh, severed penis situation. Oh, we'll Excuse get to there. Me? Just, just you wait. Hold on to your horses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rasputin was buried on January 2nd at a small church that Anna Varibova had been building at Sarkoya Selo. The funeral was attended only by the imperial family and a few of their intimates. Rasputin's wife, mistress, and children were not invited, although his daughters met with the imperial family at Varubova's home later that day. 
His body was exhumed and burned by a detachment of soldiers shortly after the Tsar abdicated the throne in March 1917 so that his grave would not become a rallying point for supporters of the old regime. End quote. Well, that's actually, uh, that's not a bad idea, no, I have to say. I'm, I'm mad that it's smart. It's smart. His wife was still his wife? Would she have even wanted to go to the funeral? His wife stayed devoted to him their entire life. Her, his entire life. Really? Yeah, there's pictures of her with him at his apartment in St. Petersburg. She got a raw deal. She got a raw deal. She seemed to genuinely love him. And I think he might have genuinely loved her, too. There's no evidence to the contrary. I mean, other than him sleeping around a lot, but, you know, that was his thing. Right, I'm just assuming that he didn't love her because a lot of sleeping around. And I did a little bit buy into that story about him uh, being shot and poisoned and blah, blah, blah that I'd heard (laughs) until you just debunked it. (laughs) So while the accused murderers were under house arrest, many people visited and wrote them letters congratulating them. The accused murderers were hoping for a trial because that would ensure that they would become heroes. Trying to prevent just that, the Tsar stopped the inquiry and ordered there to be no trial. Though their good friend and confidant had been murdered, their family members were among the accused. Yusupov was exiled. Pavlovich was sent to Persia to fight in the war. Both survived the Russian Revolution of 1917 and World War I. Someone tried to make them drink cyanide, and then someone shot them, and they jumped up, and they survived the whole war. And then they got beaten down, and then thrown into a river, and then still survived. Yeah. (laughs) They kind of got tossed out of Russia at, like, the perfect time to not get caught up in the insanity that ensued. Yeah, they they really dodged a bullet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Three months after Rasputin's death, Tsar Nicholas abdicated, and about a year later the entire Romanov family was murdered. Mm. Yeah, kind of a bummer to end on there. But I don't think that I would be as invested in the Romanov family's murder if all of the media hadn't sold me as a young girl on Anastasia being an orphan princess who could be found at any moment, despite the fact that it had been too long for her to have even been alive. (laughs) Yeah, despite the fact there being no evidence of her surviving... Uh, we were all sold on that Don Bluth film. We were all, we looked at Dimitri and we said, yes, please. Yeah, give me that yellow dress. Give me that blue sash. Give me that Bartok the Bat. I love that boy. Oh, he is a sweet boy. <laughs> boy. He got his own movie afterwards, which I think was a, a step too far. So now that I know that <laughs> that really cool death is not accurate, Did you lead me down the garden path? Are there other things? (laughs) So I didn't, I didn't include anything I knew was false in order to debunk it later. So these are just some commonly spread myths that I want to debunk for you. Some you may have heard, some you might not have. You're a good person. (laughs) I didn't want to make it confusing to listeners for me to tell them a whole story and then come back and be like, forget that. Never mind. This is the truth. It is a complicated story to do complex. The first myth I actually debunked early in the episode, Rasputin. So the myth is that Rasputin was a monk. The truth is that despite being famously referred to as a monk, Rasputin was never ordained and did not hold any official position in the Russian Orthodox Church during his life. So that one is the easiest myth to dispel. The next one is that his name meant the debauched one. This is a fact you might have heard. 
According to Biography.com, in his early years, some people of his village said he possessed supernatural powers, while others excite examples of extreme cruelty. For a time, it was believed that his name, Rasputin, meant licentious in Russian. Historians now believe that Rasputin meant where two rivers meet, a phrase that describes an area near where he was born in Siberia. Rowan, even Encyclopedia Britannica, tried to just sell me on the story that Rasputin obviously meant debauched or licentious. <sighs> I was so angry. It's everywhere. Encyclopedia Britannica has been doing us dirty lately. Yeah. I, I was really frustrated because they just said Rasputin, meaning licentious or debauched, is an interesting name for this man. And I had just read this article that said, mm, it probably means where two rivers meet because he was born in a riverside town. You know what? I'm going to say it. Here's a hot take. It is easier to use Wikipedia as a source because I can actually check where the information came from. And Encyclopedia Britannica keeps giving us debunked facts. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I'm a huge fan of Wikipedia. I regularly now donate to them because of how oh, yeah. often I use their sources. Oh, yeah. Can confirm, having read a lot about the inner workings of Wikimedia, th they work very, very hard mm -hmm. to be both accurate and and checkable. Like, you can see where the information came from. Encyclopedia Britannica, you know what? Do better. Yeah. <laughs> Update your, your stuff more often. Are you ready for the third myth? Yes. The third myth is that Rasputin loved sweets and ate poison cake the night he died. According to NPR, several biographies state that Rasputin was exceedingly fond of sugar, with one even citing his black teeth as proof. But his daughter Maria flatly states that her father disliked sweets. A trivial point of discrepancy, except that it has bearing on how he died. The standard version is that Rasputin's murderers, a group of monarchists led by Prince Yusupov, knowing of his supposed weakness for sweets, laced cakes and wine with cyanide and served them to him, and when he miraculously survived the poison, they shot him dead. End quote. Historian Douglas Smith is unequivocal in his belief about the truth on this matter. I believe his daughter, he says. The stories that he loved sweets come from less than reliable sources. Black teeth? Hard to say. I've never seen a single photograph of him with his mouth open. The love of sweets belongs, I would say, to the realm of myth. While it's true that a 48-year-old Rasputin was lured to a cellar and served cake and wine on his last night while Yankee Doodle played on the gramophone, neither <laughs> contained any poison. The autopsy report said as much. So that's a fun fact. The reason he went into the basement of Yusupov's house in order to meet with him and some other conspirators, they had soundproofed. This is according to Yusupov's biography. So who knows? But he said they soundproofed the basement so that they could get away with the murder. And in order to make him not suspicious of why they were going down into the basement of his manor, they shut the doors to the other rooms and had a gramophone playing music. And they said that his wife was hosting a few people and that they had to go down to the basement for their party. The man, they had a man cave is what you're telling me, <laughs> yeah. a man cave with a gramophone that played Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. And there's a ton of recreations of that cellar setup of what it looked like on the night he was murdered and i think there was a picture i saw of a wax museum setup 
I aspire to be so famous that one day people argue about whether or not I liked sweets. I know. It seems pretty clear that he, he he loved wine, very much about wine. I read a few times that he had a really simple diet. He ate pretty simple foods, um, like typical bread, some fish stews, but he was not that really into sweets. And he was pretty well, thin his entire life. Yeah, and he was doing the whole, I get to have sex and drink wine because God's going to forgive me my other sins. So I'm sure that food was uh, <laughs> had to be slim to make up for it. <laughs> yeah. So it's most likely that Rasputin died from a single bullet wound to the head and not the crazed story that's been told. And no poison was found in his system from the autopsy. My last myth that I'm going to talk about, we briefly touched on earlier. He had a 13-inch long penis that was taken and mummified after his death. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's longer than a foot. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I need you all to know that Rowan just pulled out a tape measure and held up how long that is. <laughs> okay, so here's the part where I say that I have a tape measure in my desk because I... Why would I... Ha how do I explain to people that I need that a lot? Because I redecorated my yeah. room. <laughs> oh my god. Tracy, look at this. This is so long. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. It's ridiculous. But it is something that people talk about all the time. Rasputin was famous for his sexual escapades. And it's kind of no wonder that people have fixated on the possibility of his missing member for over a century. Since his assassination, a number of people have claimed to own the Mad Monk's family jewels. With no. one prominent no. Russian doctor currently displaying what he claims to be the real deal in a museum in St. Petersburg. No, that's definitely the genitalia of an animal. <clears throat> Probably a horse. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yep, it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's believed to Seriously? be the genitalia of a horse or a bull. <laughs> wow, what just happened? This suddenly is off the rails. How did I not know about this? <laughs> my poor... Poor Google search history. And the things my baby eyes have seen. I, <laughs> it was... I, like they show a picture of the museum with the su supposed... Ossified horse rapier penis? Rapier itself. Yeah, it's a mummified. It's it's either a horse or a some kind of bovine Wait, animal. Hold on. Did you just call his penis a rapier? Yeah, well, I found some very funny articles that had like amazing euphemisms and i just took them all because i was like crying laughing why didn't you go incognito mode so that google doesn't think that you're interested in historical figures genitalia i did for some but then it just got to the point where i was like you know what here's a fact you well, can i know don't know dear my personal <laughs> fbi agent here's a fact yes. you can know about me <laughs> your personal fbi agent is currently applying to be moved to a different department. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, my my dedicated Russian spy is like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> 
So my last little fact is that in 1920, it was said that Russian expatriates living in Paris worshipped what they believed to be the wild man's willy as a symbol of fertility. No. Upon hearing this, Rasputin's daughter Maria vocally expressed her disapproval of such actions. What is so the that what I mentioned earlier as what we now know was a is probably a horse penis. I didn't tell you where it's displayed. Oh, it is no. displayed in a Russian the first Russian Museum of Erotica. Oh, okay, that's. I think rock. it might be the only. It was created by a doctor. I think he was an OBGYN. Um, but okay. ultimately, the cock and bull story of Rasputin remains a cock and bull story. Shame on you. <laughs> I apologize. Shame I apologize on for you. nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry for nothing. <laughs> it, <laughs> it feels like that should be at the Mutter Museum. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it should, except it's just so clearly not real. I think they would pass on that. I would pay at least the equivalent of $15. To walk through that just to have a giggle fit like a child. I would. I would go to that museum. Oh, yeah. You know what? I would, too. Who am I kidding? I absolutely would. That's only the cost of 2.5 Starbucks. Take my money. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today are just some of the research done behind Rasputin and some of his appearances in media. Okay. Historian and researcher Douglas Smith puts it perfectly when he said... When it comes to Rasputin, it's hard to know where to start, and it's hard to know where to stop. Uh, is that you know a joke about his rapier? <laughs> <laughs> I found a video of him speaking. He seems like a pretty serious person who wouldn't make a ton of penis jokes, which I find unfortunate. <laughs> his book, Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, goes into incredible detail about the life of this mystical man. And more importantly, it really helps dispel a lot of the rumors that are still widely spread to this day. As we've talked about, Rasputin is the famous antagonist of the 1997 Don Bluth animated film Anastasia. And while he's an excellent villain with a kick-ass song, that portrayal has virtually nothing to do with the real man. I cannot believe that a movie in which the rotting corpse of a villain clearly worships the devil was not smacked down by the christian media police i mean it probably we don't know that they didn't try true but they didn't try hard enough because that movie was everywhere for a minute oh yeah it's still around today i straight up rowan knows this there was one day where i was tired overwhelmed And so I put on the movie Anastasia and I texted Rowan and said, does this count as research? And she said, 100% yes, it does. Direct quote. I said, 100% yes, it does. Don't (laughs) stop. (laughs) He definitely had a magical necklace filled with demon spirits Mm -hmm. the length of 13 inches about. Yep, yep, yep. Yes, he did. Can confirm. 100% (laughs) true. My research confirms it. (laughs) So while Anastasia had nothing to do with the real story... There are many movies that attempt to portray Rasputin accurately, and those movies date all the way back to 1932 and up to as recently as the 2020 film The King's Man. How did a movie come out about him in 2020 and I just missed it? I don't know either. I also saw that I think Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio might be playing him in a movie coming up in 
that's like being produced now. Okay, sure. And I, I didn't go into, I'm Movie not going to lie to you, I didn't go into much detail on that. Rasputin was a widely known man who fascinated millions of people both during his life and long afterwards. There are countless plays, books, movies, TV shows, comics, and songs about the Mad Monk of Russia. But the band Boney M put it perfectly in their 1979 hit Rasputin when they said, Most people looked at him with terror and with fear, but to Moscow chicks, he was such a lovely dear. He could preach the Bible like a preacher, full of ecstasy and fire. But he also was the kind of teacher women would desire. <sighs> and that, dear listeners, is the story of Grigory Rasputin. How does it feel to have done your own solo episode about Rasputin, this crazy man? How does it feel? <laughs> this was so much fun. This was so much fun. You know I love history, specifically the biography episodes. And to be given permission to go ham on the research and just be able to talk for an hour and a half about his life. Oh, my God. This is one of my favorite episodes we've done. This was so much fun. It was really fun learning all this because I didn't realize how many of the details I had in my head were myths. Like, my brain retained the more superhuman story, which is, you know, very common. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I, I am more happy to know the actual history because he was a uh, a pill. He was a pill. <laughs> he was a person. He was certainly a whole person. <laughs> so I've done a lot of talking, but why don't you tell me something good? My something good this week is actually a book of poetry. So, Ooh. yeah, about a year, two years ago, maybe, my roommate gave me this book called Shipbreaking by Robin Beth Scheer. I mm -hmm. hope I said her last name correctly. And I read it all the way through, and I quite like to read poetry. Whenever I go to used bookstores, I always hunt for really interesting books of poetry, especially ones that people have written in. Mm. <clears throat> I love it, but I guess it's been long enough that I had the opportunity to read this book and have it feel new-ish. Yes. It was familiar in a way that was comforting, but it felt kind of brand new. Mm -hmm. And I love reading poetry because in the world of poetry, people have just given themselves permission to make everything fantastical and to be romantic about little details and to think very deeply about what we often don't think about or to kind of mine their own personal history for what stuck. I really like that. And when I'm not feeling very inspired, I, I tend to, to do that, to read mm -hmm. poetry. So... I can't recommend it enough. Shipbreaking, Robin Beth Share. It's very uh, no pressure poetry. Like you're mm. not getting a sonnet. Right. There's no rhyming verse. There's, it's no rules poetry, and I quite like that. So yeah, my something good is, as it often is, literature. <laughs> I love that. We both always loved poetry, so I gotta check that out. 
Yeah, I I realize I should probably allow myself to uh, write poetry more often just because, mm, because, you know, I did when I was younger. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't you, used good. To, you, no, you used to write a ton of poetry and I, I really liked it. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard someone say, I wish I could remember who it was. It was a video I was scrolling past, mm-hmm. actually on TikTok. But this woman said artists should give themselves the grace to be a beginner. Because Absolutely, yes. I'm a firm believer. It's something my dad, this is, I guess, an episode for my dad. My dad has always said to me, and I firmly believe this, and I tell it to myself all the time, every expert started as a beginner. So every time you look around mm-hmm. you and you see these experts, at some point they knew nothing just like you do. Yes, and I have to remind myself in things that I do often that I still need to put myself in the frame of mind of being a beginner because that gives you much more room to fail and fail hard and fail Mm -hmm. often and fail spectacularly. Yes. That's where the best ideas come from. So I might, you know, really go for it. I might write that like sappy online paper teenager poetry. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It allows me to rediscover words that I ignore or ideas that I don't really go for very often. So, yeah, poetry, baby. (laughs) I love it. I love that for you. Tracy, Hmm. tell me something good. My something good is that I was sitting around today and I got very and I got very emotional about bats. Sky puppies. Yes. You know how much I love bats. I, you guys, I love bats so much. And it's just only gotten more and more as I grow up and get older and learn more about bats. Can confirm when we had a bat house attached to our house for the bats in our woods to live in growing up, Tracy was my only friend that wasn't very afraid of it. I love bats so much. They're so cute. They are so important to our ecosystem. They are pollinators and they eat pests. They're adorable and they're just like absolutely vital and people hate on them because... They are really, they're really good disease vectors because their body does not respond to, their, their immune system does not over respond to diseases. So they, they don't present very sick or get very sick, but they can still carry the diseases. Mm. That is not their fault. And the way that diseases spread from bats to humans is because we invade their habitats, either through tourism or just people exploring, or we bring them out of their habitats to places they wouldn't normally go and connect them with people. So I started getting emotional about bats. I love them very much. They're very cute. So I donated to the World Wildlife Fund and symbolically adopted a vampire bat today. <gasps> really? Yeah. It's so cute. It's so cute with this little squished nose. So what you can do is you can get uh, like a stuffed animal and a, an adoption card and all this stuff. I, I would recommend doing that for people who want to. And I part of me really wanted to, but I ultimately decided... That stuffed animal is just going to be a dog toy if I get one because Otto will find right. it. And you have an option for them to not mail you anything but just send you an electronic version. And my brain went, oh. oh and then they don't have to spend money on it. Exactly. Exactly. So I went with the fully electronic version and for, like decided to forego getting the stuffed animal in the bag and all that stuff. Good choice. But they're so cute. And they have it for all different species. They have – Everything from their most popular ones being polar bears and tigers to vampire bats and tarantulas, if that's what you're into. Everything across the board. 
when they have all the time like you can get a stuffed animal of basically anything and it was it just made my heart happy and i love bats and if you have your own property and you have space bat houses are so easy to install they're small mm-hmm. just like bird little bird houses and they're so helpful and bats are good and they won't go near you they're, they have no interest in attacking you whatsoever and can confirm watching them fly around at night is delightful Yeah, actually, we should emphasize this. A bat house is just like a birdhouse. They go in and out of it at their leisure. You attach it wherever you want. It is not like a chicken coop where you maintain bats. Not at all. (laughs) All, Literally, all you do is most people nail them to a tree, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You literally just give them shelter. And as places are being destroyed, as their homes are being destroyed, it's so helpful, and it gives them a safe space to come back to. Sorry, I highly recommend the... Chiropterology, which is the study of bats, the Chiropterology episode of Ologies. Because if you're not a fan of bats now, by the time you're done listening to that, you absolutely will be. Bats are the only reason that we could go out swimming in our pond and use our hot tub at night in my yard. Because they come out at night, they fly around, and they eat all the bugs. Mm-hmm. And they're we so used- cute, and they work so hard. There's this little flappy cute babies they're so cute they're so cute we we sit on my parents porch in the summer and watch the bats fly around and for so long a lot of my friends who would come over at night and sit on the porch with me just didn't know they weren't birds oh that's funny did you read stella luna growing up when you were a munchkin i didn't oh my god yeah isn't that weird oh my god that was one of my favorite children's books and i had someone gave it to me with a bat stuffed animal that didn't go with the book they just mm-hmm. gave me them together and the bat stuffed animal would velcro and i you could wear it around your wrist oh that's so cute <laughs> yeah oh i love bats so much i'm <laughs> just having a day it's, <laughs> it's interesting it, i when i first learned about Uh, zoos and aquariums and i will not go on that tirade right now but when that first cued me in to looking into animal charities and how they're actually run many many years ago i learned that animals that are cute that have faces that humans can project their own emotions onto Mm mm-hmm get the most money. So that's why you see tigers all the time or um, Wolves, anything they in the look cat like family. Dogs. dogs. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would say bats somewhat fall into that category, but because they are so stigmatized, they, they're they excluded. So if you have an animal that you like that is not the traditional cute, fluffy donate to me i am a a panda bear animal especially consider getting involved because they they just don't have as much Mm -hmm. i donate my family donates every year i should say my parents give it to me for christmas and it's my Mm -hmm. favorite we donate to the whale museum which uh, is on the west coast and their whole job is to monitor the orca pods that live in the salish sea off washington and all the money goes to research and therefore caring for them and if you donate to them you can go to their museum anytime for free they send out little updates i adopted a whale in theory named joy and so they give me updates specifically on joy whenever that they learn about her it's so lovely but you know they don't look like people so people don't donate as much 
We will have links to all of these in uh, on our website under our recommendations page if you're interested in learning about any of the organizations we've mentioned, as well as the book that Rowan talked about. That will also be on our recommendations page. Yeah, and always page. under books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we did it. Did we do it? We did it. We did or a rather, whole episode. Or rather, we. You did it. You did it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did my first solo episode, and we have an exciting good one job, coming Good job, I Thank you. I'm excited for yours coming up. I think it's going to be very good. <laughs> I, I hope you don't know very much about it. I truly yet. don't. The, the last time I learned anything about... Here's a hint. Here's the only hint you'll get. The last time I learned anything about Rowan's topic was my ninth grade. It was a class in ninth grade. Yo, I mean, until very recently, same, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ninth grade English was the last time I learned about Rowan's topic. So that's your hint. Let's hope you can guess it. But before that episode, next episode, we are having our guest, Harry Horror. He is helping us present the truth and the myth and the legend and the man, <laughs> is that what you said, Tracy, behind Jack the Ripper. We are so excited to have him as a guest. Mm-hmm. And this is a topic that we've been wanting to cover for a very long time. And we think he is the perfect expert to call oh, in. <laughs> absolutely. This guy has books on books on books of research that he is bringing. It's going to be a really good time. We will make sure that the link to his stream is on our recommendations page. But in the meantime, definitely check out the Harry Horror Show on Twitch. He does live shows every week. He is one of our faves. And uh, thanks for thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Hmm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.